This episode of the Detox Podcast is brought to you by Rebel Riot Printing. Celebrating their 10th year in business, Rebel Riot is locally owned and family operated, offering custom printed tees with no minimums and fast turnaround. And by Bitsbox. Bitsbox teaches kids to code. Real JavaScript, real devices, and really fun. Hands down the most fun way for curious kids ages 6 to 14 to learn coding. Use promo code DETOX for $20 off any subscription order of $50 or more. That's D-T-A-L-K-S DETOX for $20 off any order of $50 or more with Bitsbox. About a week later, I asked them to write a paragraph. <laughs> I have to say the word paragraph when I mean page because page scares them, but paragraph doesn't. So I asked them to write a paragraph about a teacher that has had some impact on his life. Someone at school, actually, that's had some impact on his life. And he said, I can't write that. And I said, why not? And he said, because there isn't anyone. I said, you're 17 years old, and there isn't one person at your school that's ever had an impact on your life. And he said, a good impact? And I said, yeah, a good impact. And he said, oh, no, wait, I have one. And I said, great. And he got to work, and he wrote a page and a half about this one guy. And it turns out this guy was the guy who staffs the rubber room where they send the kids who are so bad that they can't be in class anymore. And it's like a holding room for the kids. And please don't get me started on that. But it was this room where they send the bad kids. And there was a guy working there. And it turns out the guy that was working there wasn't even a teacher because they were having a staffing shortage. He was a groundskeeper. And he sat there in that room and babysat. But what he did also was listen. And this kid wrote that the man in this room was the only person who would care about him if he didn't go back to school after rehab. And the reason he thought he might try to finish high school. And he did, because of a groundskeeper who saw him and would miss him if he wasn't there. You can't even begin to underestimate the impact you have on kids. When we give them some autonomy and help them see that they have the power to make decisions about themselves and the world and the details of their world, when you help them feel competent and not just confident, when you help them feel like they can do stuff and screw it up and that's okay because I can do it over here better next time. And when you let them know that you really truly see them and that you would miss them if they weren't there, that's what makes us great teachers. You're listening to Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure and co-host of the Hashtag M Writing Podcast. She's on the episode this week to discuss her book, The Gift of Failure, as well as how parents can better prep their kids to deal with the failures of life in order for them to become better, independent, more self-fulfilled, and self-reliant leaders and adults of tomorrow. 
It's a really great discussion. I, Jessica and I dug into a lot of topics. I know you're really going to enjoy it. Jessica is doing a lot of great work both in the education space as well as the parenting space. And so you definitely need to check out her book as well as her forthcoming book coming out in 2021, which we get into. But uh, I just can't wait for you to hear the discussion. So we'll get right to it. Up first, Brian Salmon is back with another Ask the Birth Guy. And then I get into my discussion with Jessica after this. Hey guys, it's me, Brian the Birth Guy. Today's going to be a great one. Actually, Joe Shaw, our host of the Detox Podcast, asked me to talk about Braxton and Hicks. Braxton Hicks, what are they? Okay, so when moms are pregnant, typically between the second and third trimester, they start feeling these little fake contractions. They feel like period cramping to some people or the tightening of their tummy. They last anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes of a couple of different ones happening for different time segments. Uh, They're very unpredictable, but they don't do anything. People, we call it false labor, but really it's the body kind of checking out what it kind of wants to do, and it will do in the future, but effectively. So we have a little joke. It goes like this. Braxton and Hicks walk into a bar and nothing happens because that's exactly it. Now, I don't want to leave out something called prodromal labor. Prodromal labor is tricky too. Prodromal labor means that mom's uterus is contracting at full bore like she's having active labor, you know, contractions, but nothing's really happening. You're not getting dilation. The baby's not moving down, but for some reason her body wants to get this going and the, the uterus will keep doing this over and over and over and over until it gets tired. When it gets tired, it'll back off and take a rest but then it may start all over again. So I don't wish that on any of you, but that is not Braxton and Hicks. Now, so Braxton and Hicks, the way that you can actually do something about it, if you have a friend or a partner or somebody that you know is having them and it's bothering them, they can take short walks. They can use a hot water bottle or a heating pad, maybe take a warm bath. You know, you never know. Just chilling sometimes does wonders. I hope that helps you guys. Hey, listen, I'm excited to be here. Any questions you guys have, just send them to us, and we're going to answer them for the Ask the Birth Guys segment. Now back to our host, Joe Shaw. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is Jessica Leahy, author extraordinaire. Jessica, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. <laughs> Anytime someone starts with the word extraordinaire, I mean, how could I be anything other than wonderful? So, right, of course. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'm really excited that you're on the show today. And I know we were talking a little bit offline, but I'm excited because your book specifically, The Gift of Failure, is so crucial, I think, in today's parenting mindset and today's parenting society because of the fact that I think young parents, really any parent, but specifically younger parents like myself have a tendency to want to be overprotective and and want to sort of clear the path, as it were, for their children to kind of be able to uh, how did how did I had a friend who explained as uh, we have the cheat codes to the game so let's just clear the path to the last level and right. then they can take it from there and so I think it's so easy to want to do that but but to your point and we're going to get into that is that you 
you're kind of, you're, it's a detriment to their development in that instance. So before we even get into all of that, because there's a lot to unpack there, I want to ask you a question I like to ask parents that come on the show, and that is, what do you think makes a good parent? <laughs> what do I think makes a good parent? I think that's changed a lot over time. I think uh, today what makes for a good parent is that we raise kids who are going to not need us anymore. And, and, you know, that's a really challenging thing to hear and a really challenging thing to wrap my brain around. But I mean, you know, my kids are big now. I have a 21 year old and a 16 year old, but even today there was a moment where it really was just easier, faster, less stressful if I handled this one thing myself. And yet it was a really simple thing and a really important moment for me to take a breath and say, no, you know, this is a really important moment for me to sort of teach my kid what to do because in 10 years from now, it was a passport thing. He's going to have to do this himself anyway. So why, why am I taking this opportunity for him to know what to do in 10 years away from him? It was anyway. So for me, it really comes down to, you know, being a good parent is sometimes having to put away or, or, hit pause on the thing that makes me feel good in order to make my kid more um, competent, I suppose, out in the world and and happier in the long run. Right. And I think, and, you know, to what I was saying uh, a moment ago, it's so easy to want to to clear the path and, and, and the approach of the gift of failure is, is the aspect that you're, you're allowing your children to go through these developmental phases which will allow them to become self-reliant and independent and able to work through whatever trials and tribulations they're tasked with later in life. So really talk me through the kind of evolution of the book and what drew you to write on this specific topic. Well, I've been a teacher for 20 years. I wrote this book um, from sort of between 2013 and through 2014, 15, when it came out. Mm-hmm. Um and at the time I was teaching middle school, I've taught every grade from six to 12. And uh, that just that's where my heart lies. Really, middle right. school for me is the coolest, most amazing, <laughs> wonderful period of, of life. It's the most amazing place. You know, it doesn't feel like it at the time. But from my perspective as an adult, it's the most amazing place to get to spend a lot of time. And, you know, my students were increasingly scared and increasingly hesitant, increasingly obsessed with looking perfect all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And to the point where they had admitted to me that the learning had become beside the point for them. And of course, from my perch at my teacher, you know, in my teacher place in the classroom, it's what's most important to me is that they're interested in learning. And so when my students were explaining to me that they didn't care as much about learning anymore, and were just mostly obsessed with the points and the scores and the grades, that was just really problematic for me. And at first, I just really wanted to blame the parents of my (laughs) students. And, um, you know, I I joke when I'm out speaking about this stuff that I was on a really high horse. And I it wasn't until I realized that I was doing the exact same thing to my own children that I really, I realized how important it was going to be for me to figure out how to undo some of this damage, not just for my students, but for my kids, too. So that's where the it, the journey started. Um, and I had been a writer for a while at, at that time. So writing sure. about it was sort of one of the, the natural progression for me when it came to, you know, looking at what motivates kids, what keeps kids learning, what helps them be 
better learners over the long run. Um, all of that stuff sort of came together in this in this one book, and it was an incredible honor to get to write something that um, appeals to parents and also to teachers and coaches. I'm you know I get to speak to kids. I get to speak to parents. I'm speaking to a whole bunch of um, U.S. club soccer coaches next week. <laughs> you know, there's all these different groups that have found things in there useful. So that's been pretty amazing to me. That is amazing. And and I know that there is, uh, I think when, when you're talking about checking, kids checking the scores, you know, checking their grades and, and the learning mm-hmm. is, is sort of beside the point of that uh, in that instance, it, it reminds me of you know, uh, almost a PC you had written in the New York, New York Times regarding the downside of checking kids' grades constantly, right. and 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 how detrimental that can be. And I also juxtaposed it to a, a piece that I read fairly recently on on Vox, where uh, John Thornton Jr. had written that he works with kids currently in North Carolina, and they're stressed out because of this mm-hmm. constant this ability to constantly check their grades right. and their stats. And and I think it, it gets lost on parents. How and and when I was reading both of those pieces, it, it reminded me about how we are in such a digital age now that I take work home with me, whether I want to mm-hmm. or not. It's pushed to me, and you can silence that, of course, but it's pushed to you. And so the temptation to check in all the time is, is there. And and to that point, it's the same with with grades and progress and and learning. And so there's no real separation in that instance. So how do you how are you able to kind of guide? How are you able to guide your kids and then and how are you able to help other uh, parents and teachers be able to guide their children and students in that in this type of environment that we find ourselves in today? Well, there are a couple different ways you can do this. So a couple different ways you can handle this. I mean, from a parent perspective, um, I'm at the extreme end. I have never looked at the portal as a parent. I have made the specific <laughs> decision never to do that. I've only looked at it from the teacher's perspective. Um, right. and But that means that there's a little more work on my end to be done because I have to now um, schools sort of... Uh, give the hand the keys over to the portal to parents with the sort of like here you go here's your username as if the default perspective the default action is this is now your thing and the problem is is that when we tell when we just hand the portal over to parents at the beginning of the year and say here's your username and your password what we're saying to parents is here this is now your responsibility to be on top of your kids grades and that's not the way this should work Mm, i mean at the very least we you know the schools that seem to be doing the portal well are schools that um hand down some sort of training or some sort of perspective about what the parent responsibility is and from middle school up really the parents should not be um the the main conduit of information between home and school it should be the right. kids so so for me I'm a no go on the on the portal um that's always <laughs> subject to change I've just I've been you know I I've decided that you know talking to my kids and my kids teachers face to face or over the phone is more important to me than than being able to sort of look behind their backs so um that you can take that perspective you can also take all kinds of intermediary stances on the portal, um, as some schools have. Some schools have decided not to have it open 24-7. Some schools have said, you know, look, we just think that is too... um, There's all sorts of talk now about what the portal gets in the way of, what it can do well and what it does poorly, and what it Mm -hmm. seems 
to um, do for a lot of parents, especially at sort of more high pressure schools, is to raise the anxiety level. So one thing some, some of those schools have done is say, look, we'll open the portal just at the midterm and at finals, or we'll open the portal only on Fridays, or we'll okay. open the portal every, you know, once a month. So right. from the parent perspective, that's another great way to handle it is to say, look, Sweetie, say, say to your kid, you know, here, we're going to sit down on Friday. It's Monday. We're going to sit down on Friday together and look at the portal together. So in the meantime, it's your responsibility, my child, to go to school, mm -hmm. to look, to talk to your teachers, find out what grades are in there, if there are any mistakes, if you're missing any assignments. Between now and Friday, you have all that time to figure that out. So then when we sit down together on Friday, there won't be any surprises. Um, there are there's very little research on the positive benefits of the portal. Very little research on either side, really. There is right. one study showing that at a school that had a very low rate of parent um, engagement, that um, it can raise parent engagement. The problem is, and that's great, and I'm all for that. In fact, I I looked at a school system when I was writing about the portal, um, where in order to and get parents engaged in conversations with the school they had to do some training because there were some language barriers and okay. reaching out to parents so that you can say look we want everyone to be involved not just the parents who have the tech or have the right. language ability to be involved that's always going to be a positive and in those schools that's you know having some sort of training in the portal and have translators available that's really great and fantastic and invites parents into the process at schools where parents are already really, really in the process already, mm -hmm. adding to that stress by saying, hi, here's software that you're going to need to check every single day or, you know, right. you know, it's that expectation is not doing anything positive for um, parent-teacher relationships, parent-child relationships, student-teacher relationships. Right. So there are various ways to handle it. Um, some schools, by the way, incidentally, some schools have found that um, there are all these unintended consequences that seem to come up via having the portal open 24-7. I was speaking at a school recently where they realized, oh my gosh, parents are freaking out on their kids via text because they're finding out about grades before their kids even have a chance to log on. Oh, wow. So they decided to make a rule that teachers couldn't post anything to the portal unless um, they'd had a chance to talk to their students first, which seems to make a lot of sense. But we can't right. know about these unforeseen consequences until they start happening. So a bunch of schools have had to do a lot of backtracking and Band-Aid work to fix these consequences that seem to come up when suddenly, you know, parents are, are checking a lot and it's raising their anxiety levels and creating, you know, creating some problems between parents and kids when kids don't even have the opportunity to talk to their student before they start hearing about how their C is not acceptable. <laughs> right. And I think also from a parent's perspective too, it can become... Uh, I mean, depending on how the parent did in school, it can it can be a little triggering in some ways if they're now responsible for grades, but they can't even contribute to the work, right? And so, right, there's yeah. nothing worse than having you know, anytime you're you have something going on with your kid that you have no control over, whether that's right. you know college admissions or um, or a kid being hurt and suddenly being in the hands of doctors, that's incredibly stressful. And it turns out that that's a really natural part of sort of the human 
condition is that when we feel out of control, our anxiety levels go way up. So right. in order to create some illusion of control, you know, we're hit it, we're constantly logging in and checking. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not helping anyone, really. And um, the nice thing is that the portal can be a fantastic tool for kids. Is it stressing kids out? Sure. But on the other hand, it gives them some control because suddenly they have the opportunity to check in anytime they want. And then they can go to their teachers and talk to their teachers about, you know, why, why is this a 67? I thought I understood this lesson really well. And obviously having this conversation begs the question of the way we grade, the way we assess, there are all these different aspects of, you know, education that are presupposed when we're talking about things like portals. And and I don't think that we have to presuppose all those things. I mean, the, the school we recently chose for our kid is a school that doesn't use A through F grading. It uses something called standards-based grading. So, you know, hmm. if you're a parent lucky enough to have some school choice, to have the ability to move to a new place where you can choose your district based on the you know what you want for your child in terms of education you can exert you know we're paying property taxes and putting our money where our mouth is because we I didn't want to put my kid in a school that has A through F grading because I don't I don't think it's a really fair judge of um of learning. I think standards-based grading, for example, is. Um, So there are all kinds of ways that we can open this dialogue with our school districts about the way they're doing what they do. And, and, you know, public schools across the country are are choosing to move away from things like A through F grading or um, cumulative or summative grading, this sort of summative assessments, like, you know, where this is the way we were taught, right? It's chemistry, unit one and our teacher teaches 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 maybe we get a few quizzes in there and then suddenly we have a test that's worth what 80 percent of our grade no makeups and blah 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 that's called a summative assessment and it's lousy for learning it's great for taking a snapshot but it turns out there are things that are much better for learning than that kind of assessment and um you know, not everyone is fluent in this sort of language, but that's the fun part of what I get to do when I'm out speaking to schools and talking to teachers about professional development and that kind of thing, is opening up the options. This Just because this is the way we were taught um, or just this because this is the way we were graded doesn't mean that it's the only thing available to us. Right. Can you walk me through the standards-based uh, grading sure. that you're referencing? I'm not familiar with that. I sure. might be the only one. but <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool, actually. Um, so I did write about it in the Atlantic a couple of years ago. It was a by necessity, a fairly a less than nuanced version because, you know, it was one article. Um, right. <laughs> so standards-based grading is, let's say, for example, your, you know, your state probably has, you know, um, a, a a standards-based curriculum, the oh, Common yeah. Core State Standards. Yeah. And a school can choose to use that or they can choose to use their own standards. They don't have to adhere to the Common Core State Standards. But the cool thing about the Common Core State Standards, is, at the very least, at least as a starting point, is that it's a list of skills that kids are supposed to know in various subjects in various years. So, for example, um, let's say your kid is in fourth grade and needs to know how to add two fractions. Um, They need to know how to add fractions with a common denominator and they need to know how to add fractions with two different denominators. Or they're in English and they need to know what a noun is and they need to know what a verb is. So if those are on the list of things that your kid is supposed to learn that year, the nice thing is, as a teacher, I could say, huh, does Lucy know what a noun is? 
yes or no. Either she has it or she doesn't. Or some places have chosen to do like a one, two, three, like total mastery, getting there and not there, that kind of thing. So as a parent, what's nice is the report card looks like a list of of skills and um and uh like a one two three or yes no regarding mastery so i can know and it's great for me as a teacher too especially when i have highly mobile students if i get a new student who comes into my classroom i can look at their transcript and i can say huh okay this kid does know what a noun is doesn't know what a verb is starting to know what a pronoun is and i have a good starting place for as a teacher and as a parent i can look at that and say cool here's what my kid does and doesn't know as opposed to you know a B. And then I look at that and I say, okay, well, cool, a B. I don't know what that means, what my right. kid does or doesn't know. Um, so common the, the standards-based grading or mastery-based grading, you can go to a place called mastery.org and look at um, what some schools are doing with mastery transcripts, similar kind of idea. And what it does is it allows us to focus on the learning as opposed to the attainment of a particular, um, you know, an A or a B or a C because, you know, the teacher has a, tends to have a fairly nuanced uh, look at, uh, um, sorry, perspective on what a kid doesn't, doesn't know from day to day, especially if they're doing, you know, these things called formative assessments where every couple of days right. they're sort of checking in on their students to figure out what they do and don't know and where they stand regarding certain skills. It's, it's pretty cool. So when yeah. I get a report card now, I can look at it and say, huh, okay, so this is looking kind of weak and do you do you want a tutor do you need someone do you need some more help around verbs um because it looks like your nouns are kind of under control but you know that kind of idea yeah no i like that and i think also you're starting to see so as taking this kind of a step further and and kind of evolving i know i've got other questions but i'm very fascinated by this because in the working in the corporate world i think that you're starting to see a shift from the old school mentality of pay your dues, you know, get promoted up one, two, three, four, five, and, right. and what, whatever level you're at, that determines um, how your worth, right? As opposed to right. the skills that you're bringing into your job every single day, which may or may not be utilized depending on the work you're doing. And so I think you're starting to see corporations say, I don't really care about these stats, or I don't really care uh-huh. about what you're currently at level-wise with the company. I want to know what skills do you have that are translatable right. for this type of work, and then how would you interpret that? And so I think as you start to see more corporations shift into that mindset over the years, and you start to see more schools adopt this type of grading concept, to me, it seems a natural one flows into the other all the way down the line, which is the way it should be. Well, and what most people tend to be concerned about is, well, what about college transcripts or, you know, college, Mm, getting into college if you don't have grades? And think about it from this perspective. So what colleges are starting to do is say, look, we know for a fact that AP <laughs> AP classes are BS. They're not <laughs> college level work. They're just not. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll what's happening now is a lot of kids who, you know, are showing up at um, in their first year of college with, you know, lot all these A5s on all their AP exams, but not actually prepared to do the work. So what would be really cool is if colleges were able to know not that they had taken AP bio, but what they actually know from the, mm. that class. And so right. a college would be better in a better position to say, okay, well, this kid says he wants to study engineering, but so 
you know, these these calculus skills are still looking kind of weak. So clearly the best thing to do, okay, we really want to admit this student, but we think the student is probably going to have to take, you know, intro calculus again or something like that. Um, right. It's actually more information for the colleges, not less. Mm. Um, so rather than thinking as, of it as, yeah, but there are no grades, say, yeah, but there's so much more information for a college right. to be able to look at. And I think as we see what happens with um, mastery.org, the mastery-based transcripts, and um, stand- once standards-based curriculum or standards, sorry, standards-based grading has been around for a while, um, we're going to see that more and more colleges are knowing what to do with that information when it comes to them on a transcript. Right. I like that too. And I think I, I also like how it really encourages, as you, as you said, the, the thirst for knowledge, right? It doesn't quench it. I mean, it doesn't uh, quell it. It, um, right. uh, it's helping to uh, facilitate it and allow it to, to grow. And, and I think, you know, you wrote a piece a couple of years ago about shaping and developing an original thinker. And I think mm-hmm. how it's very difficult to help cultivate, cultivate, that was the word I was thinking of, (laughs) cultivate an original thinker in the way in which we educate or have educated previously. And and it's very, like, it's great that you want to do your own thing, um, but I really need you to conform to this type of standardized test so you can check all the boxes and, and move on up, as opposed to Let's let's cultivate that. Let's explore where that thinking is. Let's see what skills you're developing and what you know, and then let's help you get to where you need to go or where you want to go. And I think this really plays into that, um, kind of to your point about the piece as well. I'm I'm really fascinated by this. Well, and this, you know, the problem is some people will hear this and say, oh, that Leahy, she's against grades and she's one of those loosey-goosey, you know. (laughs) And I see that's the problem at the moment in education is that everyone's in in an all or nothing sort of perspective where, you know, I'm an academic, my husband is an academic, I have, I, you know, I'm way overeducated, so is my husband. It's just, we are academics, we really value education. And yet at the same time, as a teacher of 20 years, I am really, really clear on what does not work when it comes right. to figuring out when kids have learned certain skills and when they haven't and grades just aren't doing it they're an extraordinarily blunt instrument instrument for um for assessing you know the skills a kids have the kid has so from my perspective you know i think there's room for someone to be incredibly like um, oriented towards rigor and, in t- you know, toward a really, you know, really rigorous education, but at the same time say A through F grading is just not cutting it. And that doesn't right. make me some kind of like loosey goosey, you know, put the kids <laughs> out with the chickens and let's see what they learn, that kind of right. thing. Um, but the problem is we're in a place right now with education where everyone's very black and white. You're either, you know, progressive or you're traditional or you're whatever. And uh, right. uh, there isn't a lot of room to discuss the in-between. And by the way, the book that was referenced in that article you're referring to on cultivating an original thinker was the book um, Originals um, by Adam Grant. And it's it's yes. a really lovely book for that book and um, Creating Innovators by Tony Wagner and a bunch of other really, you know, I love reading books all over the place on education because I I get to learn a little bit about, you know, what really works for creating original thinkers, what really works, you know, if you're trying to get your kid into, you know, an engineering program. And there, not every education is exactly right for every kid. So finding the the pieces and parts that work for your kid, I think is part of the magic of, of what helps us be good parents. 
Right. And I think about my own education experiences and, and I think about how I, I mean, just like personal anecdote, like I've always enjoyed math, but not math as it's been defined to <laughs> be explained. Does that make sense? It's like, Oh, I uh, have so many book recommendations <laughs> for you. So many mathematical I, mindsets by Joe Bowler, <laughs> Becoming the Math Teacher I, You Wish You'd Had by Tracy Zager. Oh. Um, so many, there's a whole movement called Talking Math with Your Kids. There's a hashtag for it, um, TM. W-Y-K on Twitter, Christopher Danielson, um, who has written, who he wrote um, Common Core Math for Parents for Dummies. He has a fantastic book about talking math with your kids and a book called, I think it's called How Many? Sorry, Chris, I'm not remembering the title. <laughs> but we're reevaluating right now how math should be taught. Um, Joe yes. Bowler, who works, you know, out at Stanford University, she's right at the forefront right now of sort of helping us understand that um, the way we've always taught math may not be the best way to teach math going forward. And I, and like, as I mentioned, Twitter, as a profession, teachers are the largest users of Twitter. So, you know, the stuff that's being discussed by math teachers on Twitter is so fantastic. I love dipping into <laughs> like Steve Strogatz's um, feed and he's a math professor at Cornell or, you know, or Joe Bowler's or Tracy mm -hmm. Zager's or Chris Danielson's. There's just such amazing learning happening. And I have never been a math person. And actually, I wrote about this. I, I was told in seventh grade that I wasn't really a math person. Yes. And after reading, after reading Carol Dweck's Mindset, I was in my early 40s then, I think, um, I just got really angry at that assumption, that I believed that assumption. The right. fact that I just sort of swallowed that and yes. let someone else make me believe that I couldn't do math or that it wasn't my thing. And that led, I mean, that was like a self-fulfilling prophecy too, because yes. I went on to avoid it. So right. then in my early 40s, um, I retook Algebra 1 when my oldest son was taking Algebra 1 and my students were taking Algebra 1. And uh, I sat in on um, this wonderful math teacher, Alison Gorman. I sat in on her class, on her middle school math class, <laughs> and I loved it. I had so much fun. And now I'm in a place where I pick up, for example, Steve Strogatz's new book, Infinite Powers. It's about calculus. Number one, the fact that I'm picking up a book about calculus is just crazy. Um, <laughs> but two, I loved it. I just loved this book. And did I understand all of it? Absolutely not. And as Steve Strogatz would say, you don't need to be able to do calculus to enjoy, to understand what is magical about calculus. And that has certainly yeah. been, um, it's reading Carol Dweck's mindset, by the way, has just changed so much about the way I think about my own ability to learn and my own intelligence that um, it's been, a, it's been a pretty cool thing to, to, um, realized that I had sold myself short for a really long time based on other people's assertions of what I can and can't do. And right. I, I'm not going to let that happen anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and, thank and, you, yeah. Carol Dweck. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, though. I mean, I remember being told uh, we, we, like from my family, like we are not math people, right? Yeah. And, and, oh, and just going, oh, okay, then, then I just need to suck it up, get through what I need right. to get through. And then like, right do the quote unquote fun stuff. Right. Right. And, right. and, and so my, I got my degree in theater and, and the number one thing, which I love, and I'm definitely a creative individual, but I also love 
math and I was having a hard time reconciling the two. Uh-huh. And and it wasn't until I got into my college algebra class, which I put off as long as I could until I think junior or right. senior year. And then yep. I did it. And the professor I had was so engaging. I didn't have to work hard to get an A, yeah. you know, in that class because it was just it was not I was it was fascinating to me both how easily I understood it, how naturally it came and how much more I wanted to know about yeah. this. And I was irritated that I my time to take these classes was up. Because yeah. I was graduating and, and, right. but yeah, you know, the, we're not math people. And I think oh, I read this fantastic piece and I don't remember when it was, it was years ago, but it was written, uh, I can't remember who wrote it, but they, the crux of the article was there's not math people and not math people. Right. There's some people that are more naturally inclined to it as with everything, but it's all on the approach. And right. I think that goes back and to what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, you should go check out. There's a so Steve Strogatz, the math professor at Cornell, I was just talking about. He has a fantastic series of articles that were in the New York Times, and the very first one is called "From Fish to Infinity," and it starts. He it's a whole series of columns about math in the New York Times, and it starts with sort of how a kid first understands the difference between um, that you can represent fish, 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 fish as six fish, and that. Mm-hmm. He goes all the way from there, all the way up to the concept of infinity. And these are all um, articles that and later sort of were the skeleton for a book called um, The Joy of X. And he's just, he explains math so beautifully that I just wish I could go back and right. take math from people who loved math and love explaining math as much as he does and right. and i'm just i regret that time lost because now as a journalist as someone who has to read studies and interpret studies i've had to go back and, and learn statistics and that's been just it's so hard to go and do it backwards right. i wish i had done it in the right in the right order in the first place right yeah time lost drives me crazy and that right. what you said about people being math people or not math people, that drives me bonkers. And actually, as Steve Strogatz would say, math gets hard for everyone. So just because it got hard for me in seventh grade didn't make me not a math person. It just meant that right. math got hard at that point for me. Um, right. And even for people where math comes really easily, it's going to get hard eventually. It just yes. is. Otherwise, we would have no unsolved theorems out there right. so you know how we and that's really the crux of gift of failure is you know i don't want kids to fail obviously i i've spent my life teaching kids um but i do want kids to have some sort of positive adaptive response to failure when they do and they will especially <laughs> p.s in middle school i mean right. that's just and the other thing is you know for the past five years my teaching has been in a classroom um i teach I, for the past five years i taught and i say past tense because i just lost this job because the the rehab the drug and alcohol rehab where I taught adolescents uh, closed their doors to adolescents mm. unfortunately so but for five years I taught kids who had been told their entire lives how stupid they were honestly and for the majority yeah. of them anyway and what they could do all the things they were not going to be able to do and um, it I realized how important my job was um, to help them understand what they can do. And that's become the focus of everything I do now is helping kids understand their potential as opposed to having this sort of deficit perspective that other people yeah. have given them yeah. about what they can and can't do. Right. 
And taking that into, as we're starting to wind down here, I know that you had given the the keynote at the South by Southwest EDU back in mm, 2018. That was so much fun. <laughs> Talk me through how that even came about. And then what was your experience like doing it and then also the reaction afterwards? Well, actually, I spend most of my time speaking these days. In fact, um, I get a little bit of downtime after the, uh, after uh, Thanksgiving and, and head back out and hardly see my family for pretty <laughs> much the month of March. Um, so I do a lot of that sort of speaking and keynoting. And South by Southwest EDU is just such an amazing place because you get teachers from all walks of life uh, there and that was something that my um, speaking agent actually had put me up for, and I had put myself up for it, I think, at a certain point. So it was a couple of years that we, uh, I really, really wanted that gig, and I was able to be the closing keynote. And it was, it was just amazing because it's a group of teachers who are there just really excited and inspired and want to walk out of South by Southwest with all of these new ideas for what they can take back to their own classroom and, and use to help their kids be better learners. And, you know, to have that place of privilege is just amazing to me that I get to do that. That's fantastic. Well, before we get into the last segment, if is there yeah. one piece of advice uh, you would give parents as they are uh, struggling to uh, allow their kids the, the space and ability to fail and learn and grow and also trying to keep an eye on helping to develop uh, these future leaders of America? Or really the world. Yeah, yeah. so the, you know, the basic crux of, of Gift of Failure, and, and you can go watch that South by Southwest talk. It's on it's at jessicalahey.com. It's also at South by Southwest EDU's website. Um, the, the basic crux of uh, the, the framework of Gift of Failure is this. When we are more directive of our kids, when we do a lot for our kids, when we um, clear the path for our kids, what we're actually doing is rendering them, number one, less competent, and we're also reinforcing uh this sort of uh, the message that we don't think they're capable of learning things we don't think they're competent enough to do it themselves and what it actually does is not only does it make our kids helpless it actually undermines their ability to learn because some of the most powerful teaching tools i have as a teacher rely on my students to be able to sit with a little bit of frustration and push through when tasks get difficult and kids who have had highly directive or controlling parents are less likely to be able to sit with that frustration and push through. So in a way, those things we're doing because it's just faster if we do it. It's just easier if we do it. We don't like seeing our kids frustrated. Um, and believe me, I fall victim to this all the time. Doing that stuff renders our kids less able to learn in the long run. It actually undermines the very thing we're trying to do for our kids, which is to set them up to have the best shot at the most fulfilling, the most learning, the most um, successful life. Um, so the way that we, un we the way that we undo that, the way that we sort of get them motivated to learn for the sake of learning and not just for the grades or not just for our approval, is to give them more autonomy which is control over the details of their life, the details of their learning, the details of, you know, just everything. Um, help them feel more competent, not just confident. Help them feel like they actually can try something, screw it up, but stick it out and actually get it right in the end. 
and have them know, number three, help them feel connected to us. Have them know that we don't just love them based on their performance, that we actually really love and respect them, that we respect what they're interested in and we value what they're interested in. So autonomy, competence, and connection. And so if I were to give parents any little tidbit to walk away with to sort of get started right away, it's to focus more on the process of learning and less on the product. Instead of freaking out over a low grade, what you can say to your kid is, huh, interesting. So what did you do to get that grade? What didn't work? What are you going to try? What are you going to do differently next time to make things different next time so you don't have the same outcome again? Um, You know, did you get enough sleep? Did you study the right way? Did you talk to your teacher to find out what went wrong and what you can do better next time? So focus more on the process and less on the product. And try to remember that this parenting thing is a long haul job that we really do have to focus on those long term goals as opposed to these small emergencies that arise every day. You know, do we want this homework assignment to be perfect and to be at school on the exact, you know, if they forget it, you know, do we want to deliver it for them that day? Or. Do we want them to be the kind of kid who remembers how to take their homework assignment to school with them the next time? And try, I mean, that's really what gets me through these moments is stopping and saying, okay, okay, stop. Do I want this to be easier for me in the short term or easier for my kid in the short term? Or do I want my kid to be able to do this himself next time? Or do I want my kid to be able to do this better next time? And in the end, that's the only thing that saves me from just taking over and doing everything for my kids and turning these helpless people out into the world when they turn 18 or 22. And I'm not there to do everything for them. Right. Yeah. Short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah. And as a teacher, it's the same thing I do. You know, I, I don't necessarily care that they remember every detail of what I taught today, but there, I usually try to focus on the, th- the three or four things that I'm going to really want them to know five years from now. Right. And I try to yeah. do the same thing with my parenting. Very nice. Well, now we are going to head into the final segment of the show. My favorite segment of the show. It's the dad joke of the week. It is where <laughs> I hurl un- jokes at my unsuspecting oh, no. guests to try and get them to laugh while the audience groans. Uh, but I can't hear the hard. audience. I can only <laughs> hear my guests, so it works out. Uh, but before I start, I always like to put the guest on the spot. Jessica, do you have any uh, dad jokes you'd like to offer up? I am one of those people who cannot for the life of me ever remember jokes. Like I am <laughs> okay. I can be funny on the spot, but I can I for the life of me do not remember jokes. I just don't is, I don't know that why. That is all good. I've got uh, about I've got 3 I'm going to run by you. So here okay, we go. Excellent. <clears throat> uh this one is topical. Uh it's a Thanksgiving joke. Uh oh no, I just gave it away. Well, whatever. If uh if April showers, <laughs> if April showers bring May flowers, what do May flowers bring? I don't know. Uh, oh, the the pilgrims. Yes. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, it's topical. And I'm like, I just gave away the punchline. All right. Well, anyways. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, another one. Uh, Jessica, what do sprinters eat before a race? I don't know. What do sprinters eat before a race? Uh, nothing. They fast. They ah, okay. fast. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I like that one. Actually, my son, my older son is a runner. So I will, I will get a mom joke uh, groan for that one. That's perfect. All right. Uh, last one. <clears throat> uh, Jessica, what's the difference between a cat and a comma? I don't know. 
well, one has claws at the end of its paws, and the other is a pause at the end of a clause. Okay, see, so you're hitting me in the gr- you're hitting me in the grammar heart. So I love that one. I really do, and I am going to go as soon as we uh, are done here. I'm going to go straight to um, we have a, a Facebook group for our podcast, the uh, hashtag Am Writing Podcast. Yes, that's right. And I will be giving that joke over to our um, the writers there so that they can go tell it to their own children and get their own perfect. groans. Oh, perfect! I wanted to save the best for last. So, Jessica, okay. if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Honestly, the best way is to go to jessicalehe.com and sign up. There's a little banner at the top or the little contact form and you'll get in your email box, you'll get uh, an auto reply that has everything from my gift of failure, frequently asked questions, YouTube video series to my bibliography, like my greatest hits, those math books I was talking about and Carol Dweck's book, all of that, all those books I've talked about are on that bibliography along with a whole bunch of other resources like, you know, articles that get recommended a lot, that kind of thing. So JessicaLahey.com, sign up. Perfect. I'm going to sign up right now. So there we go. All right. And uh, so we need a hashtag for this episode, Jessica. Should we go with hashtag gift of failure? Sure. That sounds great. I love it. All right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been you a are delight. You're so welcome. This has been so great. And, and your jokes were not grown worthy at all. See, I like <laughs> all you. of them. Thank you. Thank you. I need to have you back again then. <laughs> there we go. Right, I'll well, go tell them to my uh, 16-year-old and, and he'll roll his eyes at me and there walk we go. away. So there we go. There, there we go. Uh, well, listeners, uh, I'll be back next week with more great content. But until next time, hashtag gift of failure and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast, or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.